This is Colonia Cast episode 21. Thanks for joining us. You can find us at the turtleroom.org slash coloniacast, or you can learn more about our program and access the Colonia Cast Student Research Fund. Today we're joined uh, by Scott Thompson again. Uh, Scott is a currently a researcher in the Museum of Zoology, the University of Sao Paulo. He's also working at Sequa. Uh, as well as has done a lot of other things with uh, colonians in terms of uh, systematics, nomenclature, and, and uh, even discovering species and such. Uh, and we are also joined by Lucas Maya, who is currently working at the Amazonian Institute of, Technol of Science and Technology on characterizing differences in matamatas. Uh, today we'll be focusing on the genus Kellis and speaking to variation among, and, and kind of holistically talking about Kellis. It's going to be really interesting. Uh, discussion. So thanks for joining us, guys. So uh, why turtles? How did you get into them? And, you know, why turtles over other groups of animals and such? Uh, well, everything started when I was a child. I really was interested in nature and in animals. Um, in fact, my mother had a tortoise named Hercules, and I spent all my days on play with it. And also, I watched a lot of programs and cartoons, movies that showed um, scientists, biologists in the field. And it, so it was like a passion growing. And then when I grew up, I entered the college to forest biology. But in, when I was studying at this school, my favorite subject was science too. So I decided to... Um, followed this career and back in 2017 I um, just met SECPA because um, it had um, a lot of presentations in here with many professors. Um, it was the first time that I knew Dick as well, Dick Kobe, and a friend of mine um, used to work in here and I asked her how could I um, get in? And in fact, I haven't decided yet at that time that I would be working with turtles. And for my lucky, I just got here and I got really passionate about it. I started to research, to read a lot more. And with um, a common conversation um, with some friends from here, um, Sabrina, that it's a, a person that also works in here, said to me, um, don't you want to work with Matamata? Um, people usually um, don't like it and he doesn't have many things about it. So I started to research, to read it, and it was a species that um, really attracted me. It was pretty different, the characteristics, the um, comportmental aspects, and then I started to um, do some things with it. I wanted to comprehend um, what people thought about it and what uh, were the science lessons that we could research more about it and comprehend a lot better about um, this animal. Yeah, it's a cool study organism, I imagine. A lot of people, they're, they're pretty world famous when it comes to turtles and just due to their appearance, which is pretty interesting. So what specific kind of work are you doing kind of characterizing? Is it morphological difference or anatomical or what, what are you looking at specifically? Um, right now, we're looking at the external morphology based on osteology. We're looking at the characters of the plastron and the carapace as well, and the head. Um, so we do know that um, there are differences at the shape, the color, at the patterns, uh, not only because of the literature, but also by um, living with the people that uh, live in the field, because they always uh, says to us that they are pretty much different. And this was a starting point to try to uh, dig a little more deeper to understand why um, they would have such difference in morphology. 
That's pretty interesting. The recent species split that occurred, was this something that we, what kind of went into that? That was pretty interesting to see, not something that was for someone that's in the United States. I wasn't following that work up to date. So it was pretty interesting to see that. Was there any information, I guess, behind that species split before or, or what kind of led to that, if, if you know, or kind of how does your work relate to that? I think that Scott may help me with this one as well, but uh, there were a lot of discussion uh, in the past about um, being not only one species, but people kept as just one and being different of uh, the differential was the region where they were founded. And so it was always this one um, was founded in Orinoco Basin and southern one in Amazon Basin. And that was pretty much the difference, but kept as Kalos Fimbriata. And then at 2020, um, it had this work that showed that were not just morphological difference, but also genetic ones. And I think that Scott can talk um, a lot more about it and what Pritchard um, had to about the species. Um, yeah, basically, it does go back a long way, um, the idea that there were two species at least. And of course, there are also numerous fossil species, um, Columbiana San Luis, for example. But um, the idea was that there was a difference between the Orinoco and the um, Amazon, as Lucas said. But there was also some problems um, with that in that Technically, the um, Rio Negro, um, when you get west of Manaus, does actually have a connection to the Orinoco. Um, and um, it seems that there were possibly turtles getting through that. And so you've got a bit of a mix. And uh, in the end, they did the genetics and it showed up pretty well. But, um, and they split it between Orinoco and Amazon, but there's still more to do. And I mean, Peter Pritchard in his um, Total of Venezuela, for example, did actually talk about this. And um, then Ramirez, what was it? Ramirez, uh, Benton? Yeah. Vargas Ramirez. Vargas Ramirez, yeah. Vargas Ramirez, um, they use molecular work to um, split them. And, um, but there's still probably more to do. It's not as clear as that. I mean, Orinoco is clearly a separate species, and it's great to um, separate it out. But within the Amazon, there's also differentiation that um, Lucas is getting at, and it seems to be possibly water type or anything like that. It's important to understand that the Amazon is, um, in a way, a, um, a barrier. Um, the main channel of the Amazon is so big that turtles like Panamata can't cross it. And they are found in the tributaries, but not in the actual main basin. And um, so to the north and to the south of the Amazon, and different types of water types, different types of um, morphology in, within the Fimbriata itself. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, to, I'll cut this out, but Scott, maybe you could turn the camera when you talk to, because it was a little bit low, the volume. I think it's coming in once, but yeah, if you guys just want to. Yeah, move around a little to get. Yeah, sorry about that. that that's just we want to make sure that it comes out well. But okay. Um, yeah, I, was, I, I think. Oh. Go ahead. I was going to say I find it interesting how the uh, just the main channel of the on can actually serve more bigger than it, than at helping certain turtles uh, increase their distribution because this is not like that here for the most part. I mean other than like the Mississippi River, there's nothing that really comes close. And I mean, even even the smallest turtles here can can utilize the main channels of the rivers. They're, they're not as massive as this, the main channel of the Amazon or anything like that. Even here in Manaus, which is a long way up the river from the coast, it's what, two kilometers or a kilometer and a half across the main channel? Yeah, I think so. It's, or I mean, more, depends which um, which month of the year it is, because we do have um, um, the dynamics of the river as well. When it's raining a lot, the river um, floods and enters at the forest, and then it comes back 
and it depends a lot of it as well. The Matamatas are not um, pretty good swimmers, so they can't um, pass through that barrier as well. Right, so directionality of the river influences where they can disperse. That that makes sense. Is there um, – you were talking about – I know that the – in the, the captive keeping sector, it, there was a little book that was published on Matamatas. I forget who the author was, but I read that a while back, and they pointed out that there was kind of a plastoral coloration difference between the Orinoco and Amazon populations. It, it So it's more extensive than that. What are some of the, if you don't mind talking about this, maybe this is kind of under wraps for now, but what are some of the other differences, maybe anatomically or like maybe the feeding apparatus, is that something that would be different? Their, their feeding mechanisms or? Talk about black and white water. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, there's difference um, between Orinoco and Fimbriaca that we know, not only the press, the plastron color, but the shape as well. The shape of the carapace. Um, I think that there's a, a paper from 1995 from Sanchez Lilagra that shows it that one, it's more, I think Amazonian basin, in fact, has a more square or a rectangular shape of the carapace and the Orinoco one is more oval. And there's also difference between white waters and black waters here in Amazon region. We're checking that in fact, and we have two exemplars in here, one from white water and one from black water, but they are pretty much um, different. They had features that uh, are distinguished. And we, in fact, we do not know if there are different mechanisms, mechanisms or apparatus of feeding that differs, but they seem to be pretty much the, the same thing, that vacuum um, system that Matamata uses. Um, and uh, the jaw that's not very strong for biting, but it's extremely, um, uh, how can I say, adapted? Oh, it, the jaw doesn't close completely when they eat, so the water goes out, the fish doesn't have all the same. They're, and they, they're not. The, the fish or the, the other um, animals, and they have these pretty uh, interesting. Uh, way to do it because it has a, a long nose that looks like straw. So the other animals confuse it with a worm and the matamata is pretty much um, blended at an environment. It has a powerful camouflage. So when the, the fish or the other animals get close, they um, just make the vacuum mechanism to get fed. Yeah, it's an interesting, the mechanics behind it are pretty interesting. I think some people have, have dealt with that in the past, but the uh, something I recall that's pretty interesting about that is a hyoid structure and how extensive it is. But maybe one of you could talk a, a bit more to that and how, how it kind of differs from other turtles and maybe what the functions of it are. Or the the musculature oh. of the hide. Oh, here we go. Yes. Yeah, oh, wow. The hyoid of a um, matamata. Wow, yeah. that is massive. Um, what was the initial was a, size of that? That's yeah, that's was that a really large specimen to begin with? Yeah, this would have been a. Um, I don't have the actual animal that this came from, but it would have been around 32, 33 centimeters in length. Um, possibly as much as 40. Um, it was a, um, a large animal. But um, what they have is extreme, this is in pieces, so I'll bring up one part of it now. This section here uh, is behind the tongue. The tongue would have been there. And this is extremely elongated. And if you look on the other side, um, there's a tube up here where the um, wing pipe goes down. But what's important for them is these um, structures, which are extremely enlarged and elongated. And um, the other two pieces went on the bottom here. Um, and they support um, a very large musculature of the throat, a 
allowing the throat to expand. Um, so there's basically a tube going down the mouth that is big enough to swallow. In an extremely large animal, it could swallow a, a 10, 15 centimeter fish hole. Um, and um, it creates a large amount of negative pressure um, within the throat. So it sucks in the fish is the term I guess a lot of people use. And then they close it up. But it's also important to have a lot of musculature to close because they want to be able to close the throat and push all the water out without losing the fish. So it actually takes a lot of pressure to do that as well. And so it's an extremely powerful apparatus. And in a regular turtle, um, and this one's in pieces, but that's the same piece in a um, short neck. It's close to nothing. <laughs> These are the branchial horns and the two pairs of those that that's that um, the structure. Yes, um, it's basically the part that it's a bone that is literally behind the tongue. And, and I mean, humans have them too. We have a higher um, Our mammalian one is very differently structured. But, um, all mammals have them um, as well. They are used to open up the throat so that you can breathe and um, control swallowing versus breathing. And the epiglottis is connected to it as well. But um, it's um, highly modified in the long necks, snake necks, um, Kellis, Kelodyna, and Hygienidusa. It looks a bit like the Keytra. Keytra have it pretty developed, I seem to recall, because they have a similar... It is also highly yes, developed um, and also in, um, to a lesser degree, but it is highly developed in um, Amida and um, yeah, the, the piscivorous species makes sense that they're going to be using that pretty proactively. How about the, the kind of the jaw musculature that isn't involved in kind of the, the lowering of the, the, the mouth, like the hyoid isn't creating that pressure? What is the the situation with maybe the adductor muscles in the in the head, I, I think that that's different, right? Between cryptodires, pleurodires have a difference there, but matas have kind of a, a special arrangement. What is that? The jaw muscles of a matamata are actually not that powerful. I mean, you can get bitten by a very large matamata. It will hurt. I won't deny that, but it's not going to tear your skin off. It's not like getting bitten by a snapping turtle or something. I mean, until they're about 20 centimetres in carapace, they'd probably be lucky to break the skin. Um, because it's not the purpose of the jaw. It's, it, they don't chew, they don't bite. And um, the purpose of the jaw is to create, like baleen does in a whale, a barrier that water can go through, but food can't. Um, in fact, there's a paper comparing um, the power of the bite of the other species and um, the, the callus, and in fact, callus has a very weak jaw compared to the other ones. So um, it has to be pretty much adapted to get the, um, the feeding because it, it doesn't bite, it just sucks. So um, you will be not harmed, as Scott said, but it has his own features to um, maintain um, itself in the environment. Yeah, I seem to recall one of the papers in the Trina, they described kind of the, the cranial anatomy, and they mentioned that, that the external adductor muscle is kind of, it's, it's positioned in a way that it has three different joints in, in a pulley system, whereas in, in cryptodires or pleurodires, it's not like that, and there's sort of a cartilage that's in that, that external tendon that helps it glide when it's pulled back, I guess, contracted. That was pretty interesting. The matas seem to lack that, but I think that paper was based on small specimens, but maybe that's not the case in older individuals. I think it seems like there's a positive information there. Yeah, but it's, it's definitely an interesting, the, the, the external anatomy. And when it comes to the kind of the, the orientation of the vertebrae, is there something that that's sort of unique there? I, we spoke on episode 19 about, 
the fact that the Matamatas maybe aren't as long neck as we think, but is there an advantage to that in terms of creating a vacuum or? Um, yeah, the vertebrae of the Matamata, um, they are somewhat long, as I said the other day, um, but they're nowhere near Arizona or, or hydrogen-resistant. They use their necks in a completely different way. And basically, the Matamata slingshot that's head out is capable of doing that um, if it needs to, um, but it doesn't have the range of strike that um, a Caledonia has. And um, the neck is... To be honest, it's, it's very um, frenopsite. And um, so it has somewhat of a long neck, guys, and it can get a bit of reach, but it doesn't have the power and um, movement that a um, Caledonia has. And the neck muscles are more designed for um, locating the head over um, striking the head. And uh, this is a big difference within, within just within Caledonia, um, if you look at longer cold group versus um, expansive group, the neck muscles of the expansive group are literally designed to push the head forward, that is what they do. And they have very limited um, muscle musculature between the vertebrae, um, allowing fine movement, so like our finger whereas the longer coles group have large muscles between the vertebrae and smaller muscles along the vertebrae. And so their necks are more designed to uh, do a lot of fine motor movement. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, fine motor movement for the longer coles group. That's, and that's because they're kind of prodding around the substrate as opposed to creating that vacuum. It seems like there might be a trade-off between the length and, and width of the neck in terms of creating that. Because the volume in, in the esophagus is so incre it's so hypertrophied when the matamata opens its mouth. Maybe there's some sort of trade-off there. That's why the, the neck is not as long as another species. There is a trade-off, yes. Um, you Basically, a turtle can be a a strike feeder, or it can be a poke, basically a poking and prodding feeder. It, it's very hard for them to do both, although the matamata seems to have tried to make a bit of a balance um, in comparison to the paradigm. Interesting. It, are there any other sort of anatomical features that are that are pretty unique in in matamatas? Morphology obviously is is pretty unique, and maybe you you guys could speak to why it's beneficial, but before we get there, maybe if is there anything else that stands out anatomically? Um, with other species, for sure, and within the Matamatas, uh, we think that maybe uh, distinguish um, format of the head because there are more uh, some um, specimens that looks like to be more a shape like an arrow and others that um, look like to be more rectangular, but um, we do not uh, understand pretty well if there's um, a biased way to look at it. We needed to um, do the statistical tests and other measures to comprove it. Um, and there's also a difference in the shape of the plastron at the um, anal scutes that we had to see it. Um, it has the differential at um, sexual dimorphism because the females are way bigger than the males and the males have um, uh, this part of the plasma right here. Um, in the males, it's concave, these two. So they can land upon the, the female to copulate so this is one of the ways that we know it's a male or female. And this format as well varies. Uh, and we um, need to check a lot more about it because it, it has difference. And also in the number of the um, pyramid. Yeah, it, um, it has a slight difference from 12 for 13. And um, that's also a feature that's pretty interesting. Very flat head. Yeah, and the, the shape of the head, they have a flat head. And what we do think is that 
this measure may be variating to create that more arrowed or more rectangular shape of the head and neck. It's interesting that that's the case. I, the, the, the angle of the head is so obscure. I mean, my first guess as to why that would be would be in some way to, to facilitate prey acquisition and creating that suction. I, I think that that one paper that dealt with this looked at that too. There were kind of slight variations in feeding patterns. Depending on where the fish was in the water column, certain individuals would orient their, their heads at like a 45 degree angle upwards when the fish was above them. But when it was straight across, they didn't really move. Is that why would there be differences in terms of the shape? Is that maybe feeding ecology or is there something functional to that? One thing I've found with Matamatas, um, certainly in certain populations, and um, this one is an example of it. If you look at, um, all right, back that focus. If you look at the angle of the quadrates, okay, um, so this one's coming in this way, and then the other one is coming in this way. So in most turtles, that's 180 degrees across the skull. Whereas in these turtles, it's angled forward. And the reason you would do that is the same reason primates have their eyes in the front of their head. It gives um, binocular hearing, so to speak. Well, the hearing is overlapping. They can hear um, with both ears things that are in front of their nose. Basically means that they can tell where a prey is by sound. And, um, but not all matters have this to the same degree. Uh, whether that's um, whether that's something that is um, a feature of the matamatas that live in white water um, versus clear water, I'm not sure yet. But um, it seems that different um, populations of the matamata have um, potentially better hearing than others, and they can hear in completely in water that you just cannot see through. So they're basically hunting by sound. Right, I've heard that. Do you mean differences in just single populations or between the two species? Or is, is it just within each species there's variation in that? Like, No, um, Orinoco doesn't do this, um, but um, within the Amazon. And it's highly possible that the Amazon is, is a species complex. Um, I don't know that yet. It's, it's, I could be wrong. But um, there are major differences between different populations. And um, they are actually very significant. Um, the regions here in Amazon, they differ a lot because of the types of river. Um, in Blackwaters, we do have uh, low biodiversity. And we cannot see a lot because of the, the color of the river that looks like um, a T when you look in a, a recipient that you can see it through um, because of the leaves as the white waters have uh, more like a sand color because of the geographical formation as the clear water are pretty much transparent. And there's also um, some kind of hierarchy that um, we do found more callus in black waters and white waters than in clean waters. So um, the other things that those rivers differs is on pH, um, the chemical composition as well, uh, electricity, uh, the current and the way that they are uh, flowing. So there are pretty much um, variables on it that may be uh, interfering as well on those populations. I've heard that matamatas have a pretty well-developed electrosensitive capabilities, kind of in those skin flaps. I don't really know if that's been quantified, though, but the, what you're saying about the angle, the quadrate, maybe facilitating hearing would make more sense. Because as we've even talked about last episode, turtles certainly have the capability of hearing pretty well. So that that's a pretty interesting thing. Is the... When it comes to the lecture reception, is that something that has actually been studied to your guys' knowledge? Or? Not I'm aware of. Um, it's quite possible, and uh, there is evidence in other groups, other 
um, animal groups where having those sorts of frills on the face and stuff like that does mean they have some of that curve reception. But whether that's true or not a matter, I do not know. Yeah, I didn't find anything um, with that, but what I don't know is because of the things on his neck, he can sense a little bit more and better the things that are happening. So um, he can lead the way with it as well, with these apparatus and with the hearing. They recognize this is a species that can hunt in water and you've got one centimeter of visibility. So how right. it, it's Yeah, exactly. Sounds, electricity, um, touch. It's not using sight. Right, right. It, when, it, when it comes to humans too, right, we use a, a kind of a, a plethora of different senses, but these are developed for an in, in environment where we can actually see things and, and that's kind of the main predominant sense, right? But they could have this, a whole different set of senses that are important. Yeah, I mean, it's not big. I mean, um, to just turtles, I mean, what the vipers that can hunt you know, catch bats as they fly out of the cage just by the feeling of their body heat goes past. Uh, and sharks can electro hunt. Um, it's, um, there's lots of sensors that different animals use um, in environments where visibility is not possible with the one that you would use. Our species is, um, evolved to use sight a lot. And um, so our hearing and touch and everything like that is actually more limited um, compared to our side. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That, yeah. So I think that that's pretty interesting to think about and, and maybe we could talk a bit about the, the paleontology of Keyless. There's, I think some stuff known about this, but it's still sort of ambiguous. Maybe you could shed some light on what's known and, how that kind of lends itself too to the biogeographical theories that are current. It does it sort of make sense. Yeah, the um, the fossil history of Kellis is um, it's quite extensive, actually. I mean, turtles, thankfully um, for us, um, actually do fossilize quite well. They're hard, um, so they we do get a significant amount of fossils, and um, in the region known as Acre in Brazil, there are the fossil of um, Kellis Colombianus and Kellis Luisa. There's also some other fossils out there that may be another species. And there's fossils from Peru as well. Um, and Colombia. Uh, there, there's currently only two, two described fossils, Colombianus and Luisa. And they're both ancestral um, to the modern Kellis because of the arrangement of the, um, the bridge. Um, if you look at the bridge on Kellis, it's very short. It's only covering three sizes. And that's extremely short compared to any other turtle. You pull any other turtle out and it'll cover the floor. Um, and um, they've also shortened um, this part of the platform. Um, the pelvis is actually right on the edge of the platform. Uh, let's see if I can that. The pelvis is fused, right? That's pretty. All the way to the end. That's also not true of any other um, viridian. So they've shortened everything. That's, uh, that's interesting. Colombianus and Lewisite do not have those features. Okay, so there is sort of an anatomical difference. And Colombianus and Lewisite too, they were they were sympatric in terms of where they've been described. Is that something that we should worry about? When it comes to fossils, I feel like that that is a little bit suspect, but are there noticeable differences between the two? I've not had an opportunity to compare them. I've looked at Colombianus before. Um, in detail. Um, Lewis I is a bit more difficult to work with. Um, it's not been, all the matrix hasn't been cleaned out of it. But um, it may be the same species, it may not, I don't know. Um, 
I mean, if we can get a CT scan done of, of the holotype, we'll see. Um, maybe Gabriella Ferreira. Um, Gabriel Ferreira is working on a lot of the fossils. And, um, so he may do that at some point. And um, he identified Columbianus in um, Colombia as well. Um, but also other taxa. And the one in Peru is not any of these. Okay, that's good. So the how does that lend itself to the the current theories of how they dispersed and how they're kind of a, uh, the the ranges work now between the two species? Is I would imagine um, that what what you've got to also get with um, the Amazon Orinoco is that the Amazon's a very new river and. Um, before it, there was the Orinoco, and the Orinoco had a um, huge um, west draining um, source, which included what is now some parts of the Amazon, and um, the whole western area um, below the Andes, but out even towards about here in Manaus, was basically a swamp, which was the headwaters of the Orinoco, and it then flowed north and then east. And then you've got the shield, um, the Guyana shield and the, and the Brazilian shield riser, and that split the Orinoco into what is now the modern Amazon and the Orinoco. Um, Telus is probably a remnant of that old Orinoco system. Um, similar thing I said about the Venemish yesterday. And um, these are turtles that live around the borders of that large swamp that formed the headwaters of the Orinoco and then got split apart by the rise of the Guyana Shield. And um, that's why it's now got two species. So their history is um, from the old history of um, South America, modern visualization. Um, the Amazon didn't exist 60 million years ago. Okay, yeah, that, that would make sense. Uh, I guess for Lucas, what is it like? So you're actually going out in the field and, and studying these turtles, or are you just dealing with what is kind of the dynamic of your research, and what is it like to find these turtles in the wild that in situ? Um, in fact, it's pretty difficult because they blend pretty much to the environment. They have colors that look like a lot with um, dead leaves, and also with the color of the rivers. If you consider the black rivers and the white rivers as well, um, in the black rivers, you can see um, the thing, it's right in front of you, like um, um, a distance of um, minimum five centimeters, you will not be seeing pretty much. And you also would be not seeing the matamata. Um, we can catch them with traps and also um, with um, actual searching, but this would be much more difficult. Um, people that live in the areas knows it pretty pretty well, so they can find it, but it, it has always some kind of struggle because of it. And um, in fact, we do have some here that were caught by um, some fishermen and other people that live in the rivers. But it's very, very difficult because of it. Because the resemblance with the, the environment, as I said before, and because it's a very quiet animal, it doesn't move uh, a lot and it doesn't go out for bathing. So just stay in the column of water and when it's needed to breathe, uh, it just elongates um, its neck and puts the nose on the surface. And the nose, it's pretty elongated as well, like straw. So they breathe and just retract the neck. So all those features um, make it harder to catch them in nature. In terms of trapping, how do you, how do, you do that? Do you use like hoop nets and what do you bait them with or something if that's I'm assuming that's yeah we put the net on on five nets on with uh, a certain um high and special and with it 
and we wait a little bit. Matamatas uh, always stay in a place that's not too deep because of it. They don't clean well, so they can't um, move around pretty much. And we go see um, in, a, in a break of 30, 30 minutes or one in one hour um, at the maximum because they also do not have um, great um, um, brief apparatus that can hold it for a long time. So we do it. If we were lucky, they would enter the net and stay in there. Um, but there's also a way that people um, catch here that's called um, something like little net that they call stingrays as well. It's uh, a, a square thing and there's a net and they just um, put in the river and then um, pushes up. And it sometimes has some fish, some turtle and other animals as well. And there's another way that people um, get matamatas. It's with um, a tool that's called, it's, the common name is zagaya. It's like um, a spear that they um, throw to the animal and then get the turtle as well. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. we, you mentioned too one thing that was interesting early on that the snout might be used as sort of a lure that's kind of similar to the the snapping turtles that we have here except that they have that on the tongue now I imagine the tongue would sort of be in, not energetically efficient for creating that that vacuum so maybe but the nose at the same rate probably not the best if it gets bitten off it's that What's the, the theory behind that? Um, as we said before, Matamatas doesn't have a, a strong bite. So um, their mechanism of defense is um, basically throwing up when they feel threatened. They just um, regurgitate the food entirely or partially. And they also have a uh, musk. Uh, that's really stinky, so people doesn't like to deal with them because of it as well. Do you want to say the black and the white form of um, the matter matter? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's, do let's, do it. It. let's do this. This is black. Huh? Yeah. This is a black water. No, the white. Oh, this from, sorry. Um, this is a white Amazon water. River. Um, this is from <laughs> it's from uh, this is a white water form of um, the matter matter, and it's got a very bland coloration. Swans of female. Yeah, female. There you go. Don't you bite me. Very shaped. Very long yes. snout. Look at that. And that, if you look at yeah. it, try it. Big one. I hope she doesn't bite my phone. <laughs> oh, wow, you can see your eye clearly, too. <laughs> yeah, oh, and it's very camouflaged. I couldn't get it's, it. Inside, but... That is the ultimate fish eating machine. It, yeah, the ultimate it. efficiency. Oh, God. There we go. We got. Oh, this is yeah. Here yeah. we go. Here's. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is. Yeah, that's a pretty significant difference. Yeah, that's she's actually, really, that is. She's really upset with me. <laughs> this is the Orinoco? No. No, 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 no. This is a, this is a Amazonian. Okay. So it's Amazonian. Yeah. Yes, it's Amazonian. It's from Blackwater, and it's a male. It has the pointed um, rear of the shell like the Orinoco form. Interesting. Wow. Is it, is that closer to where they the Orinoco and Amazon meet? Is that where that was found, or just random? It's not. It's it's more, I guess, black and, and white water. Is it? What's the white water, black water. I don't know. It doesn't have to okay. This one's from the Rio Negro. It's nowhere near the Orinoco. Okay. Yeah, that 
I find it fascinating how they can reduce all the vibrations in the water when they're pursuing a fish, just based on that the the dynamics and how the head moves and over the course of milliseconds. But it doesn't seem like that they leave any sort of kind of water disturbance beyond just the movement of the head. The vibrations that would kind of radiate out from setting up that posture don't really exist. Maybe uh, that might not be the best way to explain that, but. The other thing to notice on this one, if I can get her to agree with me, um, I'm hoping she'll agree. If you look at the top of the head, yeah. it's a completely different shape over the years. I see that. It's more kind of truncated, yeah, right? And as we said before, that it has a very powerful camouflage. This is the, the neck and the head, and this is uh, a dead leaf, so it looks a lot like it. So in the river, they would be covered on it, and we could not see it, any of the animal. Right, so that's, there's no other sort of functional. With the, it's just camouflage. There's not maybe something less intuitive that, that morphology helps with. But. I think a lot of the fringing and, and the... The carapace as well. And I the think. carapace is about camouflage. Um, I mean, obviously, they are probably also using it a bit in defense, you know, against large catfish, especially in the pond. But um, for the most part, it's camouflage. Fish will um, swim up to them and just don't know they're there. Um, and that's the last thing you ever notice. Yeah, they're pretty quiet, so um, they stays um, untouchable because of it. You do not know they are there. In fact, uh, otherwise you're looking for it. Are there any spots it's, you can snorkel oh, for them? Oh, yeah. Actually, that's a better question, Michael. Either. I want to see them. Places you could snorkel and just find them. Um, there's more occurrence in two places near Manaus, that's Barcelos and uh, Santa Isabel do Rio Negro. Uh, in fact, Dick found it um, there one time, I think that was 23 or 26 specimens at one day, at two days, in fact. At one, they found it 20, and the other, they found the other three or the other six. So and there are two places. Those two places uh, are probably um, places that we, if you are looking for matamatas, it's surely that you will find it. Okay, well, let's... up on the tokens, he's getting a um, fair number of them in the clear water up that way. And do you, uh, is there any variation in their, in their adult size between populations or between the two species? And, uh, like how what is what is the maximum size that they can reach because i know they can surpass like 60 centimeters in carapace length but is that about that's about the end or bigger than that um there's one in the cri that was around 60 centimeters and it's probably the biggest mathematical but i've seen them from the amazon and Orinoco up at that size right, so it seems to be pretty consistent yeah, I don't think there's a, a significant difference in the maximum size. One thing I noticed going through the, I, I went through the uh, CRI, I think all of the Matamatas to take pictures to send to you guys, I think. Hopefully, the, I think that I emailed them. Well, we can deal with that later. But one thing I noticed is that a lot of them were sort of kind of misshapen in a lot of ways. That could have just been due to damage, but I think that, uh, Pritchard got a lot of them from zoos, so maybe the captivity messed them up. I, I osteo a lot the, the the bones. I, I don't know. Um, from when I was um, curating that collection, yes, there was a significant number that came in through zoos of Matamos. Um, he also had a significant number that were wild collected. Um, with the Matamata, I would certainly not utilize any of the um, X X captive specimens for uh, a certain morphometric because it will just um, mess up your uh, data. They do tend to get um, quite deformed in captivity. 
I imagine they're pretty sensitive to that. That's interesting. Very sensitive to diet, extremely sensitive to overfeeding. Um, and um, it does uh, mess up their shape. Right. That's interesting. When it comes to the conservation status, is there much known about this? Uh, people maybe want to avoid them because from what I hear, they don't taste great. So. No, killers tend not to taste very good. Um, one thing they have in their favour is their musk glands. It makes them taste terrible. Um, but um, I can gather they would seem to be relatively um, within their environment as long as not too disturbed. It is a difficult hurdle to assess um, because they're hard to find. And, um, and and honestly, a lot of people don't work on them. Um, they they are not the spectacular turtle when it comes to conservation and things like that. Um, that you know, people are interested in paraphernalia and things like that. Not interested in people for the most part. But I don't think they're in any great danger at the moment. Yeah, I, I think when it comes to it, we could say that the pet trade maybe uh, should be affecting because it's a pretty different species. And in Asia and other countries, um, they are pretty appreciated. Um, and the other problems that would be uh, would be loss of habitat and the pollution and people invading um, the, the place where those specimens live. Um, but uh, in another way, people do not tend to eat them. First, because it's very difficult to find. And second, because um, the most meat that they have is in the neck. So uh, in other parts, doesn't have it a lot. So people that doesn't tend to, do, to go after them because it's um, much easier to get uh, Uniflis and Expensa and other members from the Podocmenus. So um, there are some people that re, um, had told me that they have eaten Matamata, but not as the first option, just because occasionally they have found it. And there's also um, some registers that the people use it as some kind of medicine for breathing problems and um, for hemorrhage as well, but that doesn't have a scientific um, background on it. It's more like a traditional knowledge. Right, as is mostly the case with turtles, I think. That's, that's interesting. Probably good that they're still fairly common. I think most people that that's a refreshing thing when you're talking about turtles. Definitely not. Yeah, I think they're common. Um, the main areas where I, I'd be concerned about them is where they're put in dams. Um, I think dams would um, wipe them out in that particular area, um, not necessarily all over the place, because um, they're not great swimmers. So once the water levels go up, they lose. Water. And there's also the difficulty in captivity to reproduct the reproductive uh, problem with them because people have tried before. There are some papers on it, but has always been um, unsuccessful because even though they, they act two or three days, um, they, they had to die. So there's also this, this, this difficulty if um, hypothetically, they disappear in nature and only had left the ones in captivity. Okay, that makes sense. Interesting. Well, I think that that's, I mean, I've covered a lot of the questions I feel like we've had, but I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in here with anything, but. I'm good. All right. Well, I think it's me. We can, maybe we can do a little round of Matamata trivia. If uh, oh, wow. you guys are up to this, I think there's maybe a lot here of a 
we could do a few questions just for to give the listeners the most obscure thing possible and and us we're curious too you want me to start sure go ahead uh, i actually think this is a cool fact um because um it's a bizarre turtle um in a lot of ways and so this was what is the oldest illustration of a uh, matamata i think i've seen it but the date on it Oh geez, I'm gonna throw out a number here. If if anyone's got a, another guess, go ahead. I'm just gonna throw something out. Seventeen eighty-eight. Anyone else? Oh, <laughs> not touching that one. I don't know. Yeah. Um, You're actually very close. It's seventeen seventy-two. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it, um, that was the first one drawn um, in a paper by Bouguer, um, in France, and it's such a bizarre turtle in its, in its appearance that when it actually did find its way to Europe, it, um, it got drawn. Although the first um, description of a uh, matter was from 1741, and um, that one's not valid, of course. It would have been interesting to have been there when the first person pulled one up. I, I can't imagine. At least the first Western explorer. Obviously, people in the Amazon have been around them for thousands of years, and it's not something that's unusual there. But uh, that's interesting. Okay, any other? <laughs> maybe a few more. That's a good one. If you've got any other... Mata Mata Trivia, Lucas, you've got, you've got something. <laughs> okay, well, I don't know. He's trying to think of something, I feel like. Um, I think that uh, there's the question about the common name, that it's a word that repeats itself, Mata Mata, but a lot of people doesn't know what it means. So do you guys know what Mata Mata means? Does it mean like kill, kill? Another guess. Did I get that one correct? Oh man. I don't know either. I feel like I heard this once. Like ugly, but ugly or something. It's a indigenous language um, that repeats itself because uh, the translation would be something like skin, skin or leather leather because of the fringe and also there's um, some other indigenous language that refers to it because of the neck that looks like a lot like a tree that's also called maramara and in the other one it refers to the shape of the carapace that looks like a stair a natural stair that we had here so we have this three um origin names but we me with my friends we do in fact have a joke to um, call maramara as qq because it looks a lot like in portuguese what what would be the the reasoning behind well, i guess the the leather leather makes sense but the kill kill I've, i i think jason i've seen that cited before as the origin of it but why why would that come about is it just because it's such a unique feeding mechanism or why would that be the case yeah i, I think that would be something like that because it, it's pretty um, successful if you compare it to other kinds of feeding mechanisms um Maramaras has um, a, a great percentage of um, getting the animal, the fish, the crustacean, or the other um, animal that they are feeding, because it's and the animal is pretty close and the vacuum is pretty strong, so escaping from it, it's pretty difficult. So, could be related to it as well. Okay, that's interesting. That, yeah, that okay, that makes sense. Right, that they've observed that. All right. Well, I guess we can start to kind of wrap up. Maybe just a few more just to close us off here. 
what has been the most interesting thing in terms of researching Matamatas that you've found and what maybe most interesting encounter or thing that you've learned? Um, in fact, there's a lot of it, but I would like to bring um, a word from Fabio as well. He did it in his master's. It was with um, mercury bioaccumulation. And he confirmed that Matamatas um, has his accumulation of mercury at males, the king, and the carapacity plastron. And the places where the Matamatas live in fact, are places where the quality of the water is pretty high. So they're also uh, animals that indicate that status. And this is pretty good because people look at metamatas and think that they doesn't have a paper in nature, that they are just ugly. And they are um, pushed away uh, when you compare with the other species because podoclemis uh, is pretty common in here and people tend to find it um, pretty um, beautiful. The colors, the patterns, as the matematas, um, um, people usually say that's ugly, that is disgusting, that it seems um, prehistoric, or um, uh, a turtle that is has other turtles parts and God just put all together when it creates. So, I think that shows people the importance of Matamata. And the, although it, it doesn't have a lot of things threatening, it's important to show it for the common people that it's a turtle that participates actively at the dynamic, the ecological dynamic. And when you come to know more about it, it's pretty interesting. And, this is one of the things that led me to research about it and being so patient with this species as well. It's a bio Yes, yeah, that, that's interesting. Okay, and then maybe for just to wrap us up here, this can be both for, for Lucas and Scott. Uh, what would be like one piece of advice you would give to someone looking to make turtles or herpetology a career? Um, I would bring my own experience um, if you're looking forward to work with it. Um, start to get good references. It's pretty important to do it so. Um, start to read it a lot. It doesn't matter what kind of turtle it is. Just start to read it. Um, look for some kind of lab or center that works with turtles or with and try to participate, try to, try to be a volunteer or someone that gets uh, initial research to see if it's something that you really like, something that you enjoy and would like to keep doing for the rest of it. And then I think naturally you will be close to some kind of uh, species and then would be more curious, would um, be talking to more people, making the whole um, network that's necessary in science. And the more you know it, the more you want to know, and more passionate, more curious, and more hunger you will be, not only about the species that you work, but with all the turtles. And you want to know more and more and share with the community, with your friends, with your family, and with everyone as well. I could make it really simple. I give advice to any student. Network, um, read, and focus. You would really need those three things. Um, you, you need to be networking with people who do work on it. You need to read all the literature, and I mean, definitely read the scientific literature. And you need to taste it. You know, you need to really focus that this is what you need. Because it is hard. Right. right. I think that that's some good advice. I'm I'm hearing yep. some interesting feedback here for something. I don't know what that is, but <laughs> all right. Well, that's yeah, fine. I, I think that that's 
Yeah, I think that that's really interesting advice, and I think really well put and and concise. And and uh, as all of us as students will definitely take that to heart. And I think that people listening, uh, if you're a student, uh, hopefully can, can do that as well. So I guess we're pretty good here. I think uh, unless you guys want to add anything else, but it's been it's been a pleasure having uh, Scott on for uh, for three consecutive episodes. This has been really great, and we're really appreciative of, of the time you've dedicated to this and, and sharing information. And then Lucas, thanks for coming on today. It was really an interesting discussion, and uh, I certainly learned a lot about Matamatas. So I'm I'm excited about that. Yeah, this was a memorable one. It was a pleasure to be here to talk about something that I really enjoy. I like it a lot. And I hope we can come back to talk more about it and the new things that we'll be discovering in the process. For sure. We will definitely look forward to that. And hopefully there will be a follow-up at some point when, when all of this is, when your research is done and when we've got more stuff. So uh, thank you guys for coming on. I'm going to stop our recording now, but I think that that was really great. Thanks.